Hello and welcome to the April 27th edition of Ukraine Without Hype. I'm Anthony Bardaway and I'm here with my colleague Romeo Kokratsky. I'd also like to shout out to our you know, former host slash former uh, recent guest, Maria Romanenko. It was her birthday on the 26th. So happy birthday, Maria. Happy birthday. This week's episode will is actually pretty wide ranging. We have our combat related things, some pretty important economic news in the form of uh, Ukrainian grain exports, as well as a list of uh, foreign international topics that are of interest to Ukraine. And for the combat update, uh, Bakhmut, of course, as always, number one news item there. Um, the fighting in the city is very difficult, even more difficult than before in order to suss out due to the ever-tightening information blackouts, as well as the very unsure nature of urban warfare. But what we can say is that the Russians have more or less taken the area of the train station. Um, last time we spoke, I said that it was the front line. It still might be uh, hard to explain this, but there are conflicting reports of how far Russia has gone beyond the train station. I have seen it where they have not proceeded too much further beyond this train station, and I've seen it where they have gone, um, taken over the neighborhood behind it as well. Um, very hard to say. Like I said, the Russians continue to make uh, block by block advances through Bakhmut to the point where Ukraine now only controls a very small percentage of the city, uh, somewhere like somewhere between about 20% or so, I would, would be a safe estimate to say, I believe. But the good news in watching this, at least, is that uh, Russian progress has been quite linear. There have not been any huge encirclements or anything like we saw with Severodonetsk that, uh, that cut off large groups of soldiers that had to make a fighting retreat to safety and leaving behind um, people to guard their retreat, who would then get captured. Of course, casualties are remarkably high in Bakhmut, but the shape of the battle is such that it could be a lot worse. Again, this linear progress has made it so Ukraine is able to withdraw when it feels like it has to withdraw. Uh, the other news of fighting that came out in this last week that is interesting to look at regards uh, Kherson Oblast, uh, immediately outside of Kherson City. Uh, Kherson City itself is on the western bank of the Dnipro River, while the eastern bank is mostly marshland, uh, reeds, lots of uh, lots of islands, and uh, it's a delta. It's you understand what a delta is. It, it's no different from any other delta in that regard. Lots lots of wetlands surrounding where the very very large river dumps out into the sea. And ever ever since the city of Kherson was retaken by Ukraine, there have been a lot of raids to the other side of the Dnipro River. Uh, most of these have not gone unnoticed. There's been not too many recordings of these raids of them just getting on small boats, uh, crossing the river, taking like a small location, um, hitting the Russians hard, and then retreating back. Or some of these islands they've been able to take under control. Most of this idea has largely been just to keep the Russians um, off balance and also to keep snipers away from the riverbank. Because when the city was first captured, and still now, but not as bad as it was, there was a very, very large problem of Russian snipers on the opposite side of the river taking shots at people on the Ukrainian-controlled side of the river, uh, which, of course, is horrific, considering that they, these are people who had been under occupation for months and, after being liberated, were still being shot at with uh, sniper rifles, in addition to the, the rockets and artillery that there's really no great solution for. But anyway, so this week, the, uh, there was this video of a pretty significant raid on the opposite side of the river from Kherson City. And a lot of you know Ukraine-following accounts, lots of you know the maps that we keep referencing, 
kind of claim this as an actual Ukrainian bridgehead on the left bank of the river. I just wanted to give my two cents here that this is not the case. This was, it doesn't seem to be the case anyway that an actual bridgehead was established, but was just a much more significant raid than we're used to seeing. And ever since this video came out, there appears to have been an intensification of Ukrainian raids on the left bank of the Dnipro River. Uh, this is not an offensive, guys. It to make an, to force an actual crossing of the Dnipro River, a river that is gigantic, by the way, under rocket fire and artillery fire, and fast flowing, and and it's rainy, and it's it's rainy season. So right now, I just I'm actually looking out my window at the moment at the Dnipro River in Kiev. And it's it's going right now. It's it's really going. So any kind of forced crossing, don't get your hopes up too far with that. Um, Though I do want to say that um, the increased prevalence of raids, while some commentators have jumped ahead and said, oh, look, uh, the counteroffensive's already begun, blah, blah, blah. Like Anthony said, um, that doesn't seem to be the case. What these likely are, the intensification of raids, um, if, of course... The fact that we're hearing about them is not simply a psychological operation, but the actual uh, intensification of raids. This would likely be either probing attacks to see how well the Russian defenses are in that area, um, or maybe shaping operations to try and force Russia to um, reinforce uh, that particular area and draw away reserves um, from other areas. Remember that Russia's manpower is incredibly low. They have almost no trained elite troops anymore to speak of. Um, and any choices they make to where to hold and where to pull back are going to be incredibly costly and difficult for them. So this might be a Ukrainian command's way of trying to persuade the Russians to move in a way that's favorable to us. Yeah, what we'll be looking at, you see this actually quite often. There will be some kind of a Ukrainian uh, raid or uh, recon in force or some kind of operation that penetrates a bit deeper into Russian lines than is normal. These things tend not to last very long, but then there's the whole conversation around them as though here it is, here's the offensive. And I feel like getting too excited about these things too often is just setting yourself up for disappointment when it turns out not to be the case. Uh, the counteroffensive, as it's been described officially, is that basically they have a million different contingency plans of where to go at any particular time, and it's all just kind of waiting for what the correct opportunity would be. And these attacks are there to figure out what those opportunities are, uh, as well as to you know hit uh, more sensitive spots along the Russian line on the way to that offensive. And there has been some announcements from Zelensky's office that whatever offensive is coming, the plans had to be pushed back uh, due to a lack of necessary material. And likely the weather. The weather. It has been an extraordinarily rainy past two weeks. And like we were talking about with the Dnipro, it's, it's very flooded right now. Lots of mud out there. And that is in Kiev where these things are not so bad. In the south, where mud season is oppressive, um, it's just not good spot for that. So for several reasons, whatever counteroffensive plans were in place had to be pushed back. We don't know when they were for, of course, and we don't know when they're going to be, of course. And honestly, saying that they're pushed back could itself be a form of propaganda to throw off any kind of Russian planning for it. Um I have a problem with there being too much speculation about when and where this offensive would be just because, again, it could throw off people's expectations, but also now that the government is saying, please stop speculating as much, don't want to give the Russians too many ideas. They don't seem to be great at planning for themselves, you don't need to incept plans into their brains for them. Just to... Uh, make it clear for our listeners, of course, we have our own ideas, um, which we have discussed at length personally, but we'll only be able to, of course, confirm these 
after the actual event occurs. Um, but until then, operational security is the watchword. And of course, there's things that people are much more willing to say in person than over uh, actual recording when our words can actually, we can actually be held accountable for them and people will actually take them as analysis rather than just bullshitting. Yeah. Again, we don't have a special line to the Ministry of Defense. Um, while we do know soldiers on the front, we don't know generals or people at command. So the only thing we can offer is speculation on this front. Um, but what's better than speculation is simply having patience for the ZSU to actually conduct their operations in a manner they see fit. Yeah, so just to cap off this discussion, Herson, there does seem to have been a, a nice-sized raid on the town of Dachi, uh, which is, again, just as on the other side of the river from Herson, near where the bridge used to be. That's now no longer. It's now an X-bridge. Um, this likely was mostly done to dislodge some kind of Russian uh forward operating position most of the russian positions are not immediately on the river because they are vulnerable to this kind of thing and also because it's not ideal circumstances because this is all wetland a lot of them are set back by a couple of kilometers to where the ground and the logistics chains are are, are safer and not just a mess of back roads Talking about Herson Oblast, uh, it appeared to have also had a visitor recently, or at least they're claiming. Uh, Vladimir Putin, according to releases from his press office, visited the city of Henechesk, which is the temporary capital of their occupation authorities. This town is about as far away from the front lines you can possibly be while still being in Herson Oblast. It's at the entrance to the Arabat Spit, like this. Um, large this very long narrow beach essentially that runs side by side with crimea it's basically geographically a part of crimea is how i think about it even if it's not administratively um i've been there it's very nice it's just a series of beach resorts at least when i went there it was a series of beach resorts i'm not very uh, cued in on what's going on there now i assume more of a military occupation it did not have too many uh permanent residents there it was mostly people there service workers for all the beach resorts um but henichesk is at the very very top of this spit still on the mainland but at the entrance to it as uh, again serving as the temporary capital uh this video sh they made a point of showing like the entrances to this city but I wanted to do some conspiracy theorizing here for a second. I, did you see this video, Romeo, by the way? I try to, as a rule, avoid any media that involves Putin. Well, it, it didn't really contain much. It just showed him shaking hands. But my conspiracy theory here is that it was actually uh, older, um, that it came from when he visited Crimea and Mariupol. We talked about that because Henichesk is more or less at the halfway point between Sevastopol and Mariupol. I assume um, there's a decent breakdown explanation why by uh, English Luhansk um, Twitter account, where they also noticed that some of the decorations in the background were uh, getting ready for Easter, like Easter is coming. And according to the timeline, it would have been um, post Easter. This could just be him not taking the, the decorations down, whatever, but I, the religious stuff tends to be a bit more on point of when the holiday is coming and when the holiday is, but it, there's, there's other little bits of proof that it might have been an older video. Of course, this wouldn't be, um, the first time that Putin has staged a visit. Uh, there have been Tons and tons of instances where visits have been staged or faked um, or stage managed. So it's not really outside the pale to speculate that Putin may not be <laughs> telling the truth. Shocking as that might be about um, visiting a, uh, a frontline Ukrainian town. 
Yeah, there's this weird habit where the peop- the common folk that he meets up with look very similar to each other. So there's kind of a, you know, a Barbie situation, I guess, where the the people just change their outfits and they go from being a, a sewage worker to an environmental worker to a factory worker. An election monitor. Or an election monitor, uh, all just wearing uh, a different set of clothes this these same actors who are used um for his uh handshaking visits um but i part of the reason why he would do this is that there has been quite a bit of criticism from within uh russian quote unquote patriotic circles of how the higher ups in the military and the government never actually seem to get their hands dirty <clears throat> they see all this all these visits by zelensky and the higher ukrainian staff uh, to Bakhmut, to Severodonetsk, to all these frontline positions. And in fact, around the same time as this uh, supposed Putin visit, uh, Zelensky visited, I, I don't know if it was Avdivka directly or a town immediately outside of Avdivka, but while Putin was supposedly pretty far away from the front line, uh, Zelensky was at the front line. Uh, and this is something that has been noticed. So Putin has to at least give an image of um, being with his troops. But of course, it's all propaganda. How true or false the propaganda is, is conspiracy theory and speculation. Our next topic here is about an interview in Gulagu.net, a Russian um opposition uh independent media group i suppose you can call them and the story was followed up with in the guardian but within this there was a, a former prisoner turned wagner mercenary named alexei sevichev who gave up the goods on basically how horrible wagner is being uh not only to ukrainian soldiers but also civilians in this article i'll link it in the description uh, he was describing how at one point when t- being told to clear a building or to clear an area, his unit was told to kill everyone that looked over the age of 15 uh, to clear it out, not to do anything with the civilians, just public executions. Read the article. There's a lot in there. Very lurid. I would urge you to take caution on believing how true some of this is and how co- some of it might itself be propaganda or at least misinterpretations of the truth by this guy. Um, the specifics of these things is always very fuzzy, but from what we know from forensic evidence of the aftermath of where the Russian army is, the physical evidence of executed bodies seems to line up with the information provided in this article of uh, capturing civilians, torturing them, executing them, etc. And mind you, we knew that the Russians began their invasion with plans to um, track down, execute, and then cremate the bodies of basically any anyone in any position of influence they could get their hands on. So Wagner revealing that they don't take prisoners, they just shoot people is not surprising when viewed from that lens. Yeah, the... Uh, the other person interviewed for this was named Oldarov, another Wagner mercenary. Um, one of the more uh, descriptive things that he said was describing how they killed a bunch of people taking uh, shelter in the basement of an apartment building in Bakhmut. Um, he was talking about a young girl that they killed, saying, quote, she was screaming. She was a little kid. She was five or six, and I shot her, a kill shot. I wasn't allowed to let anyone out, you understand. So these people were given orders to uh, just kill everyone they see. Uh, This could just be particular instances. If we look at uh, comparing Bakhmut to Severodonetsk is always appropriate because the battles are so similar. But we know that the Russians did did kill a lot of civilians in Severodonetsk, but they also uh, basically pulled people out of basements and then shipped them off to filtration camps, um, concentration camps by any other name for processing and all that. And 
they it seemed to have been prioritizing not necessarily killing everybody but this whole program of you know kidnapping kids of russifying them and this description of what they're saying of not even bothering to do that anymore is very grim very scary and i'm pretty sure that's the point um of course Gulagoon guardians say that again they can't really independently verify any of this and we will not know how much of this is true until Bakhmut can be liberated and we can find the actual forensic evidence for these things happening. Um but last episode we were when we were talking about the execution video we were got into a pretty long discussion about why they would do this kind of thing from a sociological psychological perspective. Um, go back and listen to that. But just to summarize, this is a combination of indoctrination uh, to get the Wagner soldiers into the mindset of being, you know, merciless killers, and also to dissuade them from surrendering because they know that uh, Ukrainian soldiers may want vengeance for these kinds of things. As we said last time. The mercenaries that commit war crimes together stay together. And this uh, was backed up by Prigozhin um, claiming this week that uh, Wagner would no longer be taking prisoners from the Ukrainian military. Now, this could have just been bluffing. Um, there have been there's been actual videos since then of Ukrainian soldiers being captured. Of course, you don't know what happened to them afterwards, but it was not an immediate field execution. But they want that message going out of uh, no quarter given. But that whole state, that whole saying of no quarter given, um, it has kind of taken on its own world in American far right politics, for example. You'll sometimes see these banners saying no quarter given. But those things tend to leave out the other half of that phrase, which is no quarter given nor asked. Uh, so it's supposed to be a two-way relationship within the old laws of war. You raise the black flag, and that's uh, a way of saying that this fight is to the very end, no prisoners, one of us dies or the other. According to current international law, you can't do that anymore. Uh, but it bears remembering that Wagner, technically, while it is it is technically a private military company. Um, they are soldiers of fortune. They are mercenaries. While their incredibly close cooperation with the Kremlin may suggest otherwise, um, that is what they technically are legally. As a result, um, they are not covered under the same Geneva protections as uh, most other combatants. Um, mercenaries have very few rights even under the Geneva Conventions on the battlefield. Yeah, they they still have some, and like I said, a lot of this is just a matter of posturing more than an actual legal statement of no quarter given or accepted. But it's, it's, it's this whole psychological thing that we're talking about before. They do not want their people to surrender. They want their people to fight to the bitter end because they don't care if their people live or die. Uh, they're wholly expendable, and if a Wagner soldier knows, or, or if a Wagner soldier is under the impression that he will be executed under uh, Ukrainian um, capture, that he will refuse to be captured and expend every bullet he has and, until there's no choice but him, for him but to die. And that is what they want. It is not the best way to fight wars a lot of the time, but that's the, the strategy that Wagner has chosen to carry out. And really, when we look at literally every other part of Russia's winter-spring offensive and how every other part of it failed besides Bakhmut, I mean, you can't argue with their uh, successes. If it's a dumb idea that works, it's not a dumb idea. And it's not like these people care about being imprisoned post-war as far as any kind of war crimes trials because they probably won't survive this and they're criminals anyway. 
So our next big story, which has been dominating at least financial headlines, and while business can be boring, uh, money's unfortunately what makes the world go round. And Ukraine is in dire need of funds, which a number of countries are really not helping with. Um, a number of countries that border Ukraine, namely EU countries, began blocking grain shipments out of Ukraine. They put bans on grain imports and even grain transit, though uh, at least some of them have reversed those decisions. So Poland, Romania, Slovakia, Hungary, and Bulgaria, most of which are uh, Ukraine's bordering neighbors um, to the west, blocked all grain imports and shipments through their countries. Um, reportedly, this was done to protect uh, the domestic industry. In a report by uh, Radio Free Europe, Radio Liberty, uh, a Bulgarian farmer claims that 40% of their crops um, have remained unsold uh, from last year, mainly due to the glut of Ukrainian grain. Uh, if our listeners would remember um, back to uh, the beginning of the invasion, uh, the Russians immediately blockaded uh, pretty much all of Ukraine's ports, through which Ukraine would ship mass amounts of agricultural products, with grain being the big one in particular, to countries in the global south and other developing nations. Uh, of course, this caused uh, no small amount of problems for Ukraine, and uh, the UN, Ukraine, and Russia were uh, later able to work out the so-called grain deal, where a number of those ports would be unblocked and uh, civilian trading vessels will be allowed to uh, ship that grain out of those ports, though only after um, enduring incredibly invasive and time-wasting inspections by the Russian side when crossing through the Bosphorus. Obviously, this means that despite the fact that Ukrainian grain exports kicked uh, recovered from the total blockade. Um, it is still nowhere near the volume nor scale that it was prior to the full-scale invasion, uh, and that means that a lot of grain has to exit the country another way. Well, the only other way to get that grain out of the country um, is by rail into Europe. Uh, this has caused knockdown effects uh, in Europe with uh, European farmers like that. Um, Bulgarian farmer being unable to unload their own stock since Ukrainian uh, products are usually much cheaper. On top of that, uh, the EU, in order to uh, help prop Ukraine up financially, suspended customs and import duties on these exports, making Ukrainian grain even cheaper um, in comparison to uh, grain produced in the EU itself. Um, Farmers began protesting, and as uh, the agricultural industry in general in EU countries is usually a major lobby and a major political force, uh, these five countries uh, started instituting bans to um, kind of prevent uh, this glut of Ukrainian grain from um, devastating their local markets. Of course, um, the, it goes without saying that under EU trade laws, this is technically illegal because the EU is a singular trading bloc. That means individual countries cannot simply decide to ban imports on their own. That defeats the purpose of having a unified trade bloc. Um, but, of course, national governments always argue that the uh, EU bureaucracy is too slow to respond to their demands and that the Eurocrats in Brussels um, simply don't care about a poor farmer in Hungary or Slovakia or Romania or what have you, um, so that they were forced to take uh, to take action on their own. Yeah, so again, we're talking about uh, Poland, Hungary, Slovakia, Romania, and Bulgaria. Because of this whole situation, the EU Commission did not like this news very much, because as we just said, uh, the whole point of the common market is that it is common. Individual countries can't just make these decisions. And so these countries were, at least Poland and Romania, had decided to suspend some of these blocks in anticipation for this decision by the EU Commission, which came out 
the pretty late yesterday, actually. And this decision was that these countries could still block the sale of Ukrainian agricultural products within their own countries. And then there's a whole list of them. There was basically a giant wish list, they, they called it, of what specific agricultural goods would be affected by these bans. Uh, they ended up going with uh, corn, wheat, rapeseed, sunflower, and sunflower oil are just not going to be imported into these countries. While they, while this decision also said that at least until June, uh, they will allow for the transit of Ukrainian goods through their ter territory. So there will be uh, basically a giant crate, or however it is transported in a particular way, um, that will have a tracker on it saying this is from Ukraine. It will be sealed, cannot be opened within these countries, and but it is tracked on its way to the port or leaving them. So once it reaches Gdansk port or enters Poland, um, going westward into the rest of the EU, it can then be opened by whatever um, uh, port or input intake area is taking it, but it cannot be touched within the, the countries that we listed. Um, these countries are still pushing for more agricultural products to be added to the list. Um, fruit, uh, you know, everything that Ukraine produces other than those uh, five things, they want more, they want them added to a list of banned imports that they're allowed to ban. And they're also pushing for this, um, this scenario to go on, not just through the end of June, which is what the current agreement is, but also through uh, the end of the year, all the way to December. You know, you get this feeling that uh, these farmers have been um, waiting to do something about Ukrainian agricultural products for a while now. Well, yeah, people think with their wallets before anything else. And even though Poland has been one of the strongest supporters of Ukraine diplomatically, um, supplies, taking in refugees, politics all ultimately come down to domestic issues. And the farmer lobby is very strong, not just in Poland, who's kind of the, the, the leader of this effort, but also everywhere else. And especially the current ruling party of Poland, uh, the PIS party is extremely strong in these um, uh, more agricultural farmer communities that are bordering with Ukraine. Um, and it's, a, it's, you know, the conservative party. Conservative parties are often the parties of um, big agricultural business. So that was always going to happen eventually. Um, one of the major factors that actually prevented the Ukrainian-EU association agreement was the Dutch farmer lobby. Now, this happened quite a few years ago, so a lot of people may have forgotten or weren't paying attention to Ukraine at the time. Um, so the Euromaidan revolution happened because Yanukovych did not sign the EU-Ukraine association deal. But then after the revolution was won, new government, there was still more negotiation to be done about Ukraine joining this association. Everyone in Europe had to get their their two cents in on what this association would be about. Um, a lot of this is all very technical, you know, percentage adjustments on various tariffs and such that unless you're really deep into these industries don't mean much to you. And quite frankly, I'm not deeply involved in these industries, so it's not my place to weigh in on if 3% and 5% of something makes a huge difference. But the final holdouts here were the Dutch farmers, specifically the Dutch farmers. And they were very afraid of having Ukrainian agricultural goods flood European markets and price them out, cutting away at their bottom line. Uh, trade protectionism at, it is, at its most original form. Uh, and so there had to be all these concessions to the Dutch farmer lobby 
in order for Ukraine to join this agreement. And when this war is over, when Ukraine is on its way to uh, join the EU in more formal ways as far as agreements or full membership, this is something that's going to be one of the biggest stumbling blocks is this agricultural lobby within these many countries. When you look at France, when you look at the Netherlands, when you look at Poland right now is the problem right now, uh, they're very, very protectionist. They have very deep um, power bases within their governments. And anything that causes food prices to go down is a threat. And they fight for these things very, very fiercely. You see this in the U.S. as well, um, where the agricultural lobby, uh, for many, many ways, it's very, it's even more political than most. And so Ukraine is a largely agricultural uh, economy. Um, it, because of the quality of the soil, because of the, the topography and various physical factors that make up the country. Throughout most of its history, Ukraine has served as, quote unquote, the breadbasket of Europe. Um, one of the driving factors of Polish colonization of Ukraine was to control these huge, huge farms of grain, where to the point where the Polish Lithuanian Commonwealth, because of Ukraine, was the the largest supplier of calories to Europe. Um, same thing with Soviet Union. Same thing with Nazi Germany. People want Ukraine for its agricultural output. That is where its country's wealth is. But politically, that is the thing that will handicap it in uh, European ascension talks. So we're really getting a taste of the of. <laughs> forgive my uh, didn't mean to say. Kind of forgive my pun there, but we're getting a taste of what uh, future EU negotiations will look like, which is Ukraine being kind of uh, dragged down by uh, European farmers not wanting competition from Ukrainian markets. Uh, within the, 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 a quote from uh, Robert Tellus, the Minister of Agriculture of Poland, regarding how they want to kind of drag this process out more is him saying, quote, we are not going to abandon our actions at this moment if we do not receive appropriate tools that will ensure that the Polish farmer is safe when it comes to issues related to trade, the influx of goods from Ukraine to Poland. So this is not the end of it. Um, the current uh, agreement, like I said, will go through June. At that point, there will probably be another agreement. There will be another list of uh, agricultural products that may be taken off of or added to the list. So this will be an ongoing story. And it's one that is vitally important to Ukraine because so much of its state budget comes from the sale of agricultural goods, especially wheat. And as this is all going on, the Russians are again getting froggy about the uh, ocean or the, the sea-based export of Ukrainian grain, where they want to renege on that agreement. There has been um, a bit of a blockade going on there now, uh, various ships are not getting through the way they would like to get through. And this is something that I'm very nervous about because if there's no way for Ukraine to export these agricultural goods, and right now it is very um, uh, tight, although because of the, the this agreement with the European Commission, it can be sold outside of these countries. It can be transited through these countries and sold elsewhere. So that's not so bad right now, but markets are very afraid of volatility and agricultural markets especially are very sensitive to price changes. And any so anything that can make the market more afraid uh, will be a detriment to the Ukrainian economy. Unless all the prices of these things get driven way up, which is kind of the point of what Poland wants to do. So if all these prices do go way up and Ukrainian farmers can sell them for more, that's good for them, I suppose, uh, but probably bad for the consumer. But timing-wise, this is at an okay time for these blockages to happen. The spring, far the spring harvest seems to have been mostly gone through and largely sold already, though not entirely. So for now... Uh, their immediate export is not as critical as it could have been um, just not too long ago. And then again, later on in the summer, fall, where there will be another harvest that needs to be exported. 
We'll be ending our episode with a few international topics from Germany, Armenia, and Sudan that all relate to Ukraine. The first one's pretty obvious. The The Washington Post had a story where they investigated some of the ties between the further ends of the German political spectrum and Russia. And guess what? They're really close. Yes. this Most of this investigation that they did had to deal with the Alternative for Germany party, the AFD Alternative for, for Deutschland. And it turns out that they have been pretty heavily infiltrated by the Russian government as far as you know, funding com- communications. They uh, traveled to Russia for these conferences and meetings. Nothing that's surprising here, but it's good to know that someone's out there finding the exact details and not just, you know, us two sitting back saying, well, yeah, of course, they're Nazis. Of course, Nazis deal with Russia. That's just kind of how it works. <laughs> but details are nice to have. Uh, well, as the D-Link party, they also investigated kind of in an offshoot or potential offshoot. This, this They haven't really uh, split yet. Um, one of their politicians who has been um, not directly in communication with Russia, but their people were more in communication with Russia. And honestly, this kind of reminds me of the whole Trump-Russiagate situation where Trump himself did not have uh, direct communication with Russian influence, but had people who were advisors like Steve Bannon, who absolutely were, but because he himself was not directly tied to Russia, they it all just was written off as, oh, it's fine. There's nothing there. So a lot of this, the things in this story are kind of the same way, where the leadership of these movements themselves uh, tend not to be have that kind of direct one-to-one relationship with a Russian handler but they have a whole constellation of advisors and deputies and other members of their party who are. That's uh, kind of how it seems to be going. So yeah, AFD, the very far right, basically fascist party, and D-Link, the left, the left party. Uh, We've seen... Though I do want to mention on AFD um, that... They do, in fact, have incredibly close ties to the Kremlin um, with Washington Post revealing, and and not just the Washington Post. This is, I wouldn't even call it an open secret. This is just a known thing about the AFD that they've shared um, political technologists, as they call them um, in uh, in this part of the world, basically political strategists uh, directly with uh, the Kremlin, um, political strategists who are Russian, who work in Russia, who work for United Russia. Um, and of course, uh, the AFD is, has always held a very strongly pro-Russian and pro-Putin position, um, pretty much since their, uh, beginning. And there seems to have be a bit more of a direct tie-in with their recent activities to Russia. Um, so within Germany, there's this, or within most countries, but uh, apparently from what I'm hearing, it's especially obnoxious in Germany, even compared to uh, France or elsewhere, where there is this quote-unquote peace movement of saying there has to be a ceasefire and Ukraine and Russia just need to talk out their differences. And this is complete nonsense. I feel like we have talked about this enough in the past, but I kind of want to do another version of our look out for these bullshit talking points episodes. I think that is in the works right now, but it's, they're basically just asking Ukraine to surrender everything that they do. Even the specific actions they're asking for tend not to actually ask Russia to do anything. It should just be Ukraine and NATO who take these steps to appease Russia and Russia uh, just exists and accepts their gifts, I suppose. And that's what a peace summit looks like. And they've had these marches in Berlin and elsewhere. It does if you're a fascist. If you're a fascist. And they've had these marches in Berlin and elsewhere where they're saying, uh, give peace a chance and all that. But it turns out that a lot of these marches are being directly organized and communicated by um, Russian influence agents and their networks within the country. Uh, this investigation did show. Uh, closer ties to these organi- organizing 
with Russia. So, of course, <laughs> like they're they're not they're Russian influence agents in these countries are not just sitting there doing nothing. They are actively working to undermine European support for Ukraine and are actively working to uh, promote genocide because that's what they're doing. They are a pro-genocidal, pro-fascist movement. There's no getting around it that no matter what they even think they are advocating for, no matter what their, their words are that are kind of market tested to appeal to certain aspects of society. I am in many ways a consequentialist when it comes to uh, ethics and what you're doing. What is the output of what your actions will lead to will determine, determine what they actually are. And in this case, is genocide. So it doesn't matter if you think you're saying, oh, I'm, going, I'm pro-peace and all that. You're promoting genocide. Therefore, you are genocidal. And this has all been very carefully worked out by Russian propagandists to find these messages that resonate with different people. And But there's so much information out there that there's really no excuse. Like, you should know what this leads to. Ukrainians are yelling at you what this will lead to. The Russians are telling you directly what it will lead to. So you can't claim ignorance here, especially now that it has been shown so clearly that the reason why they believe these things is because Russia tricks them into being useful idiots. And I want to just clarify for our listeners, when we say you, we are not referring to you, dear listeners, <laughs> who, uh, as evidenced by simply listening to this podcast, um, probably don't hold these positions, but you in a more general in sense. In a general sense, yes. We have a pretty, we do not have a gigantic audience. We are not here for the general public, really. Uh, if you're listening to us, you're probably pretty keyed in onto Ukraine and are supportive of Ukraine. We're not saying you, you, you get it. That is a direct. I just wanted to make that clear. <laughs> yes. That is just how I talk. But yeah, so Russia very tied into the far right and far left of Germany, as they are most countries, red, brown convergence, horseshoe theory, whatever you want to call it. So whatever you want to call this, uh, it's a real thing, and it is directly tied into the Russian government. Uh, the Washington Post made this very clear, but we've been talking about it for so long. So now moving on to another part of the world that Russia has its claws into, it's Armenia. Now after um, pretty much on and off uh, warfare for quite a while, um, but with several notable episodes last year, um, Azerbaijan, which is handily um, holding the uh, better hand in this conflict, has finally decided to kind of go all out and bring the uh the crisis over the region of Nagorno Karabakh to an end by um seasoning it uh well in de facto at least uh on on April 23rd uh Azerbaijan formally acknowledged that it had established a checkpoint on the only land crossing into Nagorno Karabakh uh, which really just formalized the de facto blockade they've had of the um, Armenian-controlled region uh, for quite a while. Um, they pretended before that this blockade of that single road that leads into the area was uh, concerned environmentalists that just happened to be in Azeri military uniforms and guns. <laughs> But now they've they've simply uh, they dropped the charade. They said that this is a checkpoint now. This is um, well, they've always said that this is, of course, Azeri land, not Armenian land. Uh, and they have um, handily repressed the uh, Armenian uh, populace living in the Horn of Karabakh. Um, and it seems like uh, uh, Armenia is ready to throw in the towel where Armenian Prime Minister Nikol Pashinyan has said that basically um, we are ready to sign a peace treaty. This is as close to an admission of surrender as you can find in the modern world um, without ambiguities, without preconditions. Um, like our Armenia has decided that it is, it, it can no longer 
um, fight against Azerbaijan over this uh, over this contested zone. Um, and it's been contested pretty much for the last 30 years. So this is a uh, a pretty big shift in Armenian policy, though they don't have a lot of choice. Azerbaijan is rolling in oil wealth that has only been um, bolstered by Europe's turn away from Russian fossil fuels. Um, instead, Europe has in large part turned to uh, Azeri fossil fuels. Um, and for our listeners, uh, I'll let you guys in on a little secret. A lot of what is called Azeri fossil fuels are piped in from Russia. Um, but obviously, the Azeri government has benefited um, quite nicely from that arrangement. They've gained more international legitimacy as Europe turns to them um, for their reliable energy partner now that Russia no longer has that role. As a result, Armenia is pretty much isolated. Its only real um, partner, technically ally, but that's stretching it, is Russia. And Russia obviously is a little too busy. Um, there is a Russian, quote unquote, peacekeeping contingent stationed in that area that has been pretty much utterly ineffectual. Um, the uh, There are multiple reports of peacekeepers trying to uh, inspect or stop Azeri convoys heading into Nagorno-Karabakh with the Azeris pretty much just laughing in their faces. Um, as the the Russian uh, contingent there is completely toothless and is incapable of um, upholding the ceasefire that Russia itself had brokered. As a result, this means that um, most likely Nagorno-Karabakh will soon lose uh, its Armenian population and the area will be uh, likely resettled um, by Azeri settlers. Yeah, so this was historically a mixed region, although Armenians were always the larger of them. Uh, the Armenians were, as this was a basically Armenian area that was kind of turned into, kind of handed over to the Azeri Soviet Socialist Republic during you know, the Soviet times, there was this clash over who it really belonged to. Though, Azerbaijan never controlled um, the Nagorno-Karabakh region, um, even under. Mm. So after this war in the in the early '90s, it kind of became not formally a part of Armenia, but a unrecognized state that was more or less uh, Armenia controlled. And then in 2020, there was an, an invasion by Azerbaijan that took over. Most of the surrounding territory of this quote-unquote Artsakh uh, area, there is also Armenian-controlled territory outside of the formal region. This is all extraordinarily complicated. Good luck understanding the Caucasus. Um, uh, but for our listeners, uh, because this is Ukraine without hype, and it is our job to try and um, break down these complicated topics for you, we will be... Um, trying to get a guest from Armenia uh, to talk about uh, this particular conflict and its implications um, now that Azerbaijan has taken these movements in a little bit more detail. Yeah, I want to get uh, more area expertise to talk about this, but just know that during the 2020 Second Karabakh War, Azerbaijan took over most of this territory uh, that they had always claimed was theirs, but was under Armenian control for all these years. Um, leaving really a kind of Artsakh rump state that was almost entirely surrounded by Azeri controlled territory, except for this one corridor. And ever since then, they have been have been a bunch of border skirmishes, kind of pushing Armenia, uh, bullying them around in order to show them that um, at any time Azerbaijan can come and fi finish the job. There has been uh, diplomatic uh, intervention by Russia that has largely failed by the United States and EU that was slightly more um, uh, slightly more successful, but looks like it will fail. 
And it seems as though the Armenian government has more or less accepted that it is a fait accompli. Azerbaijan will swoop and take the rest of this territory. And when they do, according to statements by um, various Azeri officials, including the president, Aleyev, that they view large parts of Armenia proper as part of Azerbaijan as well, that during the next war, uh, they will be trying to take, if Armenia would even exist after the next war. So, And the Azeris have used openly genocidal language when referring to Armenia and when threatening Armenia. Um, the, the Azeris are very clear that they are ready to not only cleanse Nahorno-Karabakh or Artsakh of Armenians, but also whatever other parts of Armenia um, that the Azeris happen to want at that moment. And Armenia does have something more resembling a very kind of multi-directional um, diplomatic strategy. They have warm relations with the U.S. They have warm relations with the EU, especially France. Um, but they're not military allies, and there's no promises that any of them would step in to defend Armenia. Not even Artsakh. Setting Artsakh aside and the various territorial claims there, but Armenia proper under threat. There's no real sign that anyone would stop in would step in to stop it. And as we've been saying in relation to Ukraine, of uh, if Russia takes uh, if Russia is allowed to continue, then their goal is to destroy Ukraine. So Ukraine has to fight, and um, everyone has to support them. That option exists because Ukraine has support, because America um, is able to throw in as much, because the EU is able to throw in as much. Armenia does not have that, so they do are kind of forced into the situation of accepting this fait accompli of there's, there. No decision has been made yet, but the Armenian government has been strongly signaling and almost directly saying that they're willing to basically give up on the Artsakh issue because, like, like I said, the next war will destroy Armenia. And again, for more on that, um, keep listening to your listeners. We will have um, an expert from the area to talk uh, more deeply and more in depth about these, um, about the, the complex nature of the conflict there uh, in a later episode. Moving on to our last topic is Sudan. Now, this is obviously uh, not typically a part of the world that we speak about. I personally am not overly familiar with the area, but there are some um, aspects of the uh, conflict or of the civil war that's broken out in Sudan um, that does affect Ukraine. Anthony, what can you tell us? Yeah, so with Sudan, mostly I I don't want to go too in depth here because it is so so very far out outside of our our normal range, which I kind of consider Armenia to be closer to our um, remit than this. It is Ukraine and the region. Yeah, it's it is Sudan it is the region. Sudan is not the region. So what we're looking at here is we have the formal army under uh, General Abdul Fattah Al Burham. And then the RSF, the Rapid Support Force under Mohammed Habdan Dagalo. And there's basically a civil war between these two. Uh, so Dagalo was saying that, um, that the army would be eventually moving against him and was acting in self-defense. It was a preemptive strike against the army. The army, of course, says that this is just an insurrection by the RSF. And a note here that the RSF, you may uh, recognize them under a different name that has reached the news in years past, the Janjaweed, the people responsible for the Darfur genocide. <laughs> so these are not pleasant people. Um, but neither side here is exactly um, guiltless, um, though one would hope that the government would be able to stay together more coherently and work towards democracy, which has not happened since the ouster of the former dictator, um, Omar al-Bashir. And mind you, al-Bashir ruled from 1993 to 2019. He was a pretty long-serving 
uh, dictator. Until he was ousted in a military coup. And this fighting between these two is kind of a contest to see who amongst the coup would be actually in charge. Um, the fighting right now is mostly taking place in Khartoum, but is also taking place outside of this area, including um, Darfur. Uh, the fighting has moved closer to the Egyptian border. Um, some Egyptian soldiers have been taking, taken hostage. Um, very, very messy stuff. But what I really want to focus in here is the Russia connection, which is that the RSF has been working quite closely with Wagner, though uh, they're denying it. Wagner's also denying it. But the proof is pretty clear that the RSF and Wagner are working quite closely together and that um, there may be some Russian influence into sparking this conflict. Um. Now, Wagner is very deep into Africa. We've talked about this before, um, mostly into the Central African Republic, Mozambique, Libya, Madagascar, Mali, and in South Sudan as well. They are involved in the, the, the conflicts in those countries. Now, I don't want to fall into Cold War logic here. In the Cold War, there was this idea that basically everything in the world that was happening that was anti-America was controlled by the Soviet Union. And that just wasn't the case. It very much left out um, local conditions, especially in Vietnam, over who over the influence of the Soviet Union versus local concerns. And I don't want to do that here. I'm not saying that Russia or Wagner specifically is the impetus behind these conflicts, but they are attaching themselves to these conflicts in order to make a profit and in order to steer them in a direction that is advantageous uh, to Moscow. So that is happening now in Sudan. Um, a lot of the uh, local forces there are quite disorganized, and that is the kind of situation where a better trained, better organized, uh, better tech um, kind of force such as Wagner has a lot of opportunities to step in either as advisors or direct combatants and really kind of uh, swing things with just a little bit more um, professionalism, I suppose you could call it. So watch this space. Um, this, the Sudan conflict is not going to be over anytime soon. There's looks like this will get very nasty, very violent. There's a lot of refugees. Um, so we just need, from our perspective as Ukraine journalists, we will be watching it from the perspective of what Russia is going to do there. Though, of course, as humans, we'll be watching it from the perspective of basic empathy. <laughs> so uh, there may be further updates on this one as well. So that was our episode for this week. Um, I hope that you took away something from it. Our topics this week were quite varied in where they went to. Um, each one of these deserves a lot more time and focus. Um, we would like to... As always, encourage you to search out uh, local uh, sources and journalists covering each of these topics. We'll have a few recommendations in the show notes for this episode, um, so please keep an eye out for that uh, for people to follow. Yes, and I would also like to say that when it comes to things such as this grain blockade, um, the best news for this always comes from very specialist industry type journalists who very much know the details of, you know, tariffs and rates and transport and all those things. So look for the specialists in these kinds of situations. So with that, I would like to thank you all very much for listening. You may go to our Twitter at Hype Ukraine, um, share us with your friends, your family, uh, Rate and review us to bump us up in the algorithms. If you would like to financially support us, you can go to patreon.com slash ukrainewithouthype and join one of our tiers. So I would now like to thank our Patreon subscribers. So thank you very much to Deborah Grazer, Will Stevens, David Shepard, Dawson, Giorgio, Ivana Kakratskaya, Michael Drucker, Anna Karen Person, Anonymous, Devi, Etienne, Justin Devendorf, Kevin Albritton, Michael Wickman, Mike Perone, Sam Toman, Shieldwall, Silas Frank, Theo, Adam Poppenheimer, Aiden McDonald, Alex Grochimal, Anastasia, Barbara, Big Rob, Captain Technical, Chris Bennington, Chris Walker, 
Crystal Burns, Daniel Spring, David Wall, Emily Bavona, Eric Honnold, Grace Krause, Had to Laugh, Jacob Hoam, James Wise, Jenny Louise, Jurd, Julia Lindsay, Kristen Swanland, Laura De Leon, Levy Grove, Lottie, Marguerite, Matt Miller, Melissa Caselco, MJ, Anonymous User, Noam Hart, Paul Bailey, Rainy McNerlin, Sanjay, Scott Gengris, Scott Tokeryuk, Steve Bien, Stuart Akers, T. Bart, Thomas Sobiek, Veronica, and Victoria Leontaneva. Thank you all very much. You make this all possible. Until next week, Slava Ukraini. Heroin Slava.